the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960, as promised, and uh, delighted to uh, to bring back Lewis and uh, Hugh Hallman. And uh, in uh, in that order, they are the Managing Director of Insight Analytic- Analytics, insightanalyticsllc.com is the website for Lewis Hallman. And Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney in town, an educator, and uh, they www.hasbeen.com. Oh, stop it. Stop it. Former. <laughs> Never was.com. Stop okay, it. Stop it. <laughs> Hopefully for, for, once former and, and soon again to be in, I hope, public office. <laughs> I didn't realize you disliked me that much. No, we're going to start a campaign. You don't have to sign off on it yet. But when you see the support, then you'll say, oh, how can I turn you all down? Because you have this view of government, Hugh, that um, – is important and that we've lost, and I wrote it down because I wanted to share it with you, and it's that um, you believe in authority controlled by public opinion, not public opinion controlled by authority. And yet we've fallen through the looking glass, and we have a new set of, to steal Lewis's favorite word, overlords uh, running our media such that we have them controlling public opinion in a way that is feeding on itself. We've got uh, government officials and the overlords working together to make us all be afraid. I know. know. It actually extends just beyond the the virus. I was thinking on the election results and looking at this again. And there's there's this terrible sense, I think, that, that a lot of us share that we're more divided politically than we've ever been. And, you know, I, I, it's been difficult for me to count, frankly, the number of times this year I've heard people suggest the possibility of a second civil war even, yeah. you know, just very, very troubling. But what is interesting, if you actually look at the the polling data from the, the most recent general election. The data. Here he goes. The data uh, analyst. Go, go, so, go. Uh, looking at, for instance, Vermont and Washington, uh, sorry, Vermont and Wyoming, each of those actually was a 70-30 split, obviously, Wyoming for Trump and then uh, Vermont for Biden, which is actually within four or five points of where it's been for the last two or three decades. Not a lot of movement. And then if you actually look at the the types of people who vote both ways, the number of, of sort of demographic interest groups that are only plus or minus five or six points from 50-50 splits is staggering. And so it doesn't tell me looking at that that we're really that divided but what it does tell me any more divided than we've been for decades right what what it does tell me is that we and every other democracy on the on the planet right now are all going through the same kinds of media shocks all at once and we just happen to be the loudest about it interesting so it is much more i think that we are being told relentlessly by our political class and our media and our our tech overlords, that we are divided and we should feel divided and we should feel the press. But if you actually look around and you talk to other Americans, than they tell us we are. I absolutely do. Just as we're less sick than they tell us. Correct. We are. Yeah, that's right. And that's an arguably both thought. of them are sicknesses. Is it true in your individual lives with friends and colleagues that you have not? I mean, we all have someone we try to steer away from politics because we know it's just not going to 
be a wonderful conversation, but have you lost friends over politics or anything like that or family members? Well, that would, that would presume that I had friends. But uh, starting with that, I think what one sees, and Lewis has uh, been talking to me about his point he just made uh, recently, and looking back at those conversations where things were a little more frictious and, and, and hostile, it may be because the media pressure to push us to extremes because the feed is on the extreme of those conversations leads people to really go zero one red blue my team versus your team in a much more hostile way think, than they might have otherwise exactly so so think about how the attention economy actually function functions there is a finite amount of human time and attention staring at these screens and so it really becomes almost a zero sum game for these massive firms trying to get people to click on their article. Right. You have and, to ha- be extreme. Right. And not only extreme, you have to be negative because negative articles are over two and a half times more compelling to us than our positive articles. Right. We are just emotionally wired to pay more attention to a negative things because in an evolutionary sense, they're more likely to herald our imminent demise. Uh-huh. Only would you hear that on your show, Herald Our Imminent Demise. And so, in fact, it's also been a long, long truth in politics that the hit piece is much more powerful than the puff piece. Right. And that's uh, one of the challenges we all have, that our human condition is such that we are wired to go for those negative things. And in this environment, our our media overlords have been uh, feeding us. Uh, the worst things they can, and they are calling on our worst. It's such a uh, good point you're making. Instances. I have seen a few journalists who um, I think, yes, they've all been in TV. Uh, and I'm thinking of like four of them I can think of right now who they were anchors of some form or another. One or two were national, two were local. Um, and Whatever the reason was, their contract expired and they weren't renewed. And they, to each of them said they're starting a new media project where they're going to highlight positive news stories and the positive things in life. And I knew each and every time, and I was right each and every time, we will never hear from them again. Yeah, who? They will, exactly. They will just, they will never be, there's no interest in it. Yeah. And so here we are exactly. talking exactly. about, exactly. but... The human condition is such that we all have to – we're stuck within it, uh, and that's uh, in all three of our conditions uh, or cases not a bad thing necessarily. That's so interesting. We're not as divided as they tell us. I don't think that they are, you know, frankly. Um, I mean we are by party, right? The Republicans went 9 to 1 for Trump and the Democrats went 19 to 1 for Biden. But that doesn't hold up geographically because, again, even in the most extreme states, Wyoming and Vermont – Keep in mind also, these are the smallest states by population nearly in the country, which means that, of course, they're more likely to vary more from the mean. It's just a statistical law. They would have to. Let me to. ask you a question. I got into this. Uh, you know, my old boss, Bill Bennett, We he has a podcast that he interviewed me on today. It'll air later in the week. And we got into this a little bit. I'm curious what you guys think. Um, are we – it's popular to say after every election for Republicans to say, well, we're still a center-right country. Do you? I I don't believe it. I have all, and I'm I'm the outlier liar in every 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 time I've raised this. I I don't. I think do believe it. Right. In you, fact, and uh, I wanted to ask your opinion. Yeah, he it, he thinks we are. Yeah, I don't. And the reason I say that is the only place in Arizona where things changed 
were at the presidential level and Martha McSally, who got herself very, very close to President Trump. This was a, 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 a election about whether you liked or disliked Donald Trump and, frankly, the style, not the policy issues. And so that style would overwhelm people's policy choices is not actually that unusual. In this instance, Arizona's county race, Maricopa County, which was being continuously beaten into us, was going purple. Mm-hmm. Went the other way. On the county attorney and the we, recorder. That's correct. The yeah. recorder and the county attorney and uh, the county board of supervisors remained where it was. It was originally thought it was going to go. Uh, and then uh, looking at the congressional delegations. So the Arizona House did not go to the Democrats. The Senate didn't go to the Democrats. And in fact, in Maricopa County, the most liberal county other than Pima in the state, it picked up. It picked up. They, the uh, uh it, the the county attorney's office was re- remained in Republican hands, and the uh, recorder went flipped. back to yeah, flipped to the went Republican. from D to R. So how can you think otherwise? Well, <laughs> I can unfold a long thesis for you. But Please. first, I want to hear Lewis. I'll do. I'll save mine so for a little later. Are we a center right country? And we picked up um, house seats, by yeah. the way, across the country. Yeah. And now we're the issue was that certainly the Senate was going to be lost, and now we're down to the vote in uh, in Georgia. It's a piece of my so so let's yeah. to sort of answer this. I, I kind of want to understand what you mean by center right because in some Are sense, we a conservative country again. Like there's probably still more that needs to be unpacked with that because you can be conservative on a very wide variety of dimensions. We're more conservative than Europe is, yeah. but we're not as conservative as we were 20 years ago. Okay, so that that helps me. You know, that's more on my side. We're not as concerned. I would argue it's because in the last presidential cycle, we had President Trump, who ultimately was more populist than conservative. If you look back at George W. Bush, he was more conservative uh, than George Herbert Walker Bush, who was more liberal than Ronald Reagan, but not by much. Sure. But, but I mean, this all sort of goes back to this this quote, and forgive me both of you for saying this again, that conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit in some <laughs> sense. I've never heard you say that. Before. I said it uh, when we closed out the show a couple weeks ago. <laughs> no, nah, nah, that's it was a, right. It's actually not my line. It is a, it's a quote by Michael Malice. Yeah. But conservatism that, I, is progr- what is it? Conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. Can you explain that when we come back. Let's do it. It sounds fascinating. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. Hugh and Lewis Hallman are my guests. Lewis, you, you, you said a line that uh, is really interesting. Can you repeat it and then explain it? Right. So, again, it's not my line. It's, it's an author, Michael Malice, who is brilliant, by the way. And the line is that conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. So we were discussing before the break about whether or not the U.S. is still a center-right country, depending on what we mean by center-right. Yeah. And I had said that... It's not as conservative as it used to be, but it's more conservative than Europe. And, and that broadly resonated with you. I agree you. with that. And so let's look uh, over the past few decades at what conservatism has actually managed to conserve. Because I would put it to you that the answer is almost nothing. Um, under the three conservative presidents that you mentioned, Ronald Reagan, George H.W., and George W. Bush, the federal government budget exploded under these small government conservatives. So what are we conserving? 
It's uh, not that we are stopping and no, rolling no, no, things no, no. back. We've conserved a lot. We've protected our country. We've taken down communism. We've expanded business and employment. I would add Donald Trump to the lo- to the list. I would say he was more conservative than George H.W. or George W. Defense of one's country, though, is not a conservative value oh, yes, necessarily. Oh, yes, so here's in a previous show just yesterday. You were discussing the fact the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. I was. The, the Republican Party um, is a party of ideas. You join it based on a, uh, joining that philosophy, sure. whatever. And this is the argument Lewis is now starting to unpack versus the Democratic Party, which is do you belong to certain groups that therefore mean you're a Democrat? Are you African-American? Are you Hispanic? Are you a unionist, et cetera? And that those those group identities are what then bring you together. It caused me to start thinking seriously about the next book you have to write of why it is we put into the basket that conservatives are fiscally conservative, that's in quotation marks, but are also defense hawks uh, and have other attributes And it's caused me to begin thinking very seriously that what we now need to do, as I believe you've been articulating, this is the new time in which conservatives are trying to figure out what it means to be a conservative. Lewis's point. Ronald Reagan blew the budget because he decided that defense was more important and specifically freeing the Soviet Union or the people of the Soviet Union from that uh, terrible burden of communism. Believing that on doing that and providing liberty and freedom to people, it would generate significant increases in economic activity and well-being for all of those people and us. And that ultimately we would have a a benefit, a a peace dividend that we could then start uh, making a, uh, the net present value of his expenses were less than would otherwise have been expended. And in fact, we did get a peace ben- dividend. We just blew it. Because Bill Clinton got his hands on the uh, fisc and used the peace dividend to spend a whole bunch of other money instead of repay ourselves, pay down our debt incurred in attacking and dealing with the Soviet Union. But it also shows you that the bifurcation or the tripartite nature of our federal government, in this case bifurcation between Congress and the presidency, is really important too. Because I don't think the budgets would have been blown so much as they were under the Reagan administration if there were a Republican Congress. Agreed, completely agreed. Just as a Republican Congress after 94 tamed the spending of the Clinton administration. That's correct. The the contract for America is what then brought that spending back into control. I mean, Congress, uh, many conservatives have argued Congress is really the supreme of the, of the, of the, of the three branches. Well, government. up until 1900, that was clearly right. true. And even right. the presidents, uh, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, etc., all believed that the presidency was quite weak and intended right. to be quite well, weak relative to the legislature. Back on, back on, on sort of the more contemporary issue, though, like let's, let's look at this even in regards to the new spending omnibus bill that just hit sure. the floor today. Sure. Right. You know, we've got one point three, one point four trillion dollars in additional spending, plus another nine hundred billion dollars in coronavirus that are purportedly, you know, fiscally conservative, quote unquote, Mitch McConnell and other senatorial leadership is shepherding through on our behalf. And what really is infuriating about this is that only about 100 billion of that 900 billion is going to go in the form of stimulus checks to actual everyday Americans. The other 800 billion or so is going to more crony bailouts. In fairness, in fairness, I'm not sure McConnell would say it was fiscally conservative. I think he I would wouldn't say, either. 
No, I don't think he said it is my point. I think what he, that what they're all admitting, aside from the six senators who voted against it, I think what they're all saying is that it stinks, but we have to do it. See, all I, think I they're hear admitting is, it's a bad bill. That all they all have I to hear do. is we aren't going to stand by our principles and we're a bunch of cowards. Okay. But okay. I would have voted against it. I would have too. I mean, I think it's I think it's obscene. Well, because you know, here's the issue, right? As much as you know, we might want to help people, and and even if we disagree on whether or not direct cash handouts are the best way to do that, you know, what really infuriates me is this is effectively like trying to give money to a charity to feed the hungry, and finding out that they're taking eighty five percent of the right. money you just donated and doing Buying it for cars. an executive, bun- you know, right. executive brunches and the like. And it's like, I'm sorry, that's not the hungry people I was Buying, talking about. Buying new cars is a great example because that's in there. New cars for AIDS workers abroad. Right. $200 million. New cars. It's obscene. Right. Well, you know, the foreign car makers needed a bailout too. But $10 there, million to study feminism in Pakistan. But there are, you know, there are other protections and issues here that have nothing to do with coronavirus. There are new copyright protections in this oh, yeah. bill such that, that. that – uh, if you share images or material online, you can now... That is copyrighted. Yes, that is copyrighted under Title 17. You can be fined $30,000 per image. And I think we do this daily. Right. Routinely. And so if, if, if you were to share a folder of 50 images, you could then be liable for $1.5 million, which is more then you would be paid out by workers' comp were you to lose any two of your limbs in an industrial accident right. through your employer's negligence. Right. So this, we, is, this is our priorities and that this this is what these people are bringing forward through congress with two hours to review in the form of a five thousand page bill it's obscene they're not looking out for our interests here they're bribing us to shut us up yeah this is cronyism at its worst and the bribe is 10 percent of the 900 billion dollars goes to average americans as the bribe and then the balance is paid out to the usual folks and again who is benefiting from the coronavirus lockdown and everything else we know we've got the the uh, media giants. We've got the retail giants. So the, our our good friends at Amazon are doing very very well, while all the street retailers are shut down or having grave problems. Airlines, whose stock has doubled despite the fact that they've laid off ninety thousand workers in this calendar year and received billions and billions of dollars of stimulus and bailout money, they're benefiting. Um. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I mean, I. I I, the only other point I was going to make is the notion that 600 bucks is going to do much is laughable. Yes. It's laughable. It's a bribe and not even but a good Nancy one. Nancy Pelosi is parading around as if she has saved helped the saved the common worker. When Donald Trump's tax plan gave $1,000 to individuals – she called it crumbs. This is four hundred dollars less than her crumbs. I just, I just want that marked down somewhere. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll do some COVID when Consider we come back. You actually have an interesting transition to it. We'll do. Yep. <laughs> we'll be right back. Do we have Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer by him? Wasn't that the one I liked better? What's the one I like better? Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I have Hugh and Lewis Holman uh, with us, delightfully. And you were going to make a transition for us, Lewis, to get us into COVID talk. Absolutely. So we uh, did a review again this this last week where 
we've sort of been been coming to the same issue over and over again. And the issue really lies in how the Arizona Department of Health Services and many, many other state health services around the country are presenting their data. It really is a data stewardship issue. So what tends to happen in the reporting throughout all of this is that AZDHS will post how many total deaths arrived on their doorstep attributed across various days. So today, for instance, they reported 153 new deaths. However, if you look at the actual graph of when these deaths happened, the day with the most deaths is in late July with 103 deaths. There's nothing even close to 153. And yet, all of the individual media companies are collecting these daily reported changes as if they are the daily attributed changes. And this is a huge issue. So, for instance, over this last week since we last spoke, there have been 703 new deaths reported. But only 121 of those currently have been attributed to days between December 15th and December 21st, the week since we've spoken. I'm going to fix the English there. Yeah. So how many deaths total were reported by the state? 703. So the State Department of Health Services told our Arizona Republic and other media outlets that 700 and? 703. Three deaths occurred this week. They were reported this week. But they actually occurred in prior periods. The only deaths that occurred that we know of so far this week are? 121 of them. So 121 deaths out of 703 deaths are what actually occurred in the last week. But you wouldn't know that unless you took Lewis's patients and went to the state's website and run your cursor over their beautiful charts because they are so in love with charts and won't provide the data. So, Cara Christ, you keep lighting the governor on fire and pouring gasoline on the flames every time your department puts out one of these reports and then quietly mentions, this is just reported. It didn't necessarily happen today. Why don't you put out the actual numbers in a way that average reporters can see how many people are uh, died yesterday and the day before and the day before. When you do a report today saying, we've now gathered up a bunch of old death certificates and found some more people, explain and provide a chart that shows what days they actually died instead of lighting our governor on fire and pouring gasoline on him. Exactly. Every every single time we have to do this, it's it's just another round of confusion and fear mongering and more panic that gets released because the problem that we have is that these revol- results greatly overstate the the phenomenon if Gravity. you analyze them day by day. We have not had 153 single deaths in any day during this pandemic. These sort of lumpiness in the data is a result of the fact that many employees take weekends off. And so the data doesn't get reported on those days. It gets reported subsequently. And the longer the pandemic goes on, the more backspace there is to fill in all of these old records to find old things that were missed and then lump them in now. And so please, Kara, please, Governor, why don't you get some people at the Arizona Department of Health Services who don't hold themselves out as epidemiologists, but hold themselves out as statisticians, people who actually understand numbers and and can explain them so that we don't keep having the uh, state's newspaper of record blaming you for failing to lock everybody in their homes. In fact, the pandemic's uh, trajectory currently is smoother and lighter than it was before July 28th. 
Will Humble notwithstanding. Yeah, he's been on a tear lately. Well, it's it's very interesting that, you know, all of the choices that come out of the current and then former Arizona to help in the hearth, excuse me, AZDHS chairs, of which Will Humble used to be the head of AZDHS, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how that position is effectively turned into a pipeline for Will Humble to lobby on behalf of organized <laughs> health care companies. So it's the healthcare industrial complex that is out there uh, making more and more money. The government ended up sending a big chunk of money to hospitals. It's very interesting that every time there's more there's a crisis, Will Humble gets another speaking engagement and quoted in the uh, paper. Fun for him. Hold that thought. We'll come back. We'll take your calls. I know one good thing we can do for our health, and that's taking balance of nature. I do it every day, and I want to put in a word for them. You get tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants, fruits, and vegetables in this great product. Um, I take it every day. I give, have given it to friends. I've given it to family. They love it as much as I do. It's a great deal right now with free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Improve your energy, health, and boost your immunity with Balance of Nature. Give them a call at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the show. If you're selling your house and it's not going well, if you want to sell your house or if you want to buy a house, James Wexler of JMG Real Estate is the guy you want to call. The Phoenix Business Journal ranks James the number one selling individual agent in Arizona. He has over 500 five-star reviews, over 500, unheard of. He guarantees to sell your home at market value or pay the difference. And for maximum convenience, he can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer on your home within 24 hours. He'll always let you out of a contract. No worries about that. Give James Wexler a call at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's James Wexler, W-E-X-L-E-R.com. On those deaths, by the way, that you were mentioning, Lewis, um, I think another helpful thing that the Arizona Republic studiously avoids would be the age categories. That's absolutely correct. Thus far, cumulatively through the pandemic, about 73% of all of the deaths in Arizona have been from the age 65 and up category. Uh-huh. Okay. And for 20 and under, let's make sure we understand the percentage of Arizona's deaths is 0.2 uh, of the entirety. And it puts the mortality rate on a case basis, keeping in mind that we don't know how many people are asymptomatic. So we're only counting people who've tested positive, um, that of those people who have tested positive, 0.02 of them are 20 and younger. So that is, uh, the flu runs, uh, between 0.12 and 0.18. Uh, so it's significantly less than the flu as a risk. Have you guys noticed or heard those new flu ads that, uh, Izzy DHS has been running everywhere? It sounds like they've no. co-opted the language of COVID right. and are using it now for the flu vaccine, you know, stop the spread, protect um, the seniors. It's fascinating to me. Well, part of it is the, the, their hope to slow flu spread so people don't end up in the hospital and flu and, and, uh, impact hinge on the hospital's upride on COVID. So we still have this issue. And uh, and even dear old uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser didn't answer this one correctly. It is the case that the Medicaid-Medicare bump is 20% if a hospital is serving one of those patients and they are COVID. So there's this huge incentive for hospitals, and we saw this happen early on in the pandemic, to test everybody. If you came in for hip surgery and you test positive for COVID, you are a COVID patient, notwithstanding the fact that you're not there for symptoms of COVID. 
So it's a patient with COVID, not a COVID patient. And so we end up with what appears to be, from the hospitalization numbers, a significant drive to tag as many people as possible as COVID. And so we are approaching and have slightly passed by a percentage or so of the percentage of beds being used by COVID patients than we were at the height of the first spike. And in fact, the uh, it's slightly less, uh, slightly more for ICU beds. What Lewis has noted in the last week, last few days anyway, is it seems to have plateaued. The other issue is... It is too early to tell, though, that it is plateaued. The last three days do look very good, but we probably want to see at least a week of this sort of figures before we can conclude that it has But more important, if it is a hospital crisis, Mr. Humble, why are you not advocating that your membership stop taking on patients who are there on non-emergency basis? That is, folks who are scheduling their surgeries. What do we call that otherwise? Elective. Elective surgeries. Elective activity is still going on in hospitals. When they got shut down before May 31st from elective surgeries, the hospitals squealed like pigs under a knife. And now they do not want to give up elective surgeries, which are very, very profitable, and instead want us to try to uh, stop uh, less valuable patients from showing up. You know, it occurs to me suddenly that it's very weird that you can ha- you can undergo elective procedures and engage in elective behavior in hospitals, which are a key constraint on our ability to fight the virus, but you can't engage in elective behavior in a restaurant or bar, which or is not a key, you know, health club. variable. Or a health club or a gym. Yeah, so... so a uh, really valid point. Do it yeah. again. It's great. It's wanna, very interesting that you can still use hospitals, the key constraint on our ability to respond to the pandemic, for elective procedures, but you cannot engage in elective behaviors at movie theaters, at restaurants, at bars, at gyms. Why? That doesn't seem right. It sounds as almost as if the medical leadership is trying to bundle and crony up more money for themselves. But they wouldn't do that. But These are got, the scientists. You, you, that takes you to a point that you were wanting to make about the government's role and responsibility in this sort of thing. Absolutely. So, you know, what we have seen is an overwhelming expansion of paternalistic government behavior. It's not American citizens who are asked to look at their local circumstances and respond as they might be pressured to. It's always been top down. The government is now voluntarily and on behalf of all of us assumed the moral responsibility for our decision making, which also means as a corollary that they have assumed moral responsibility for the outcome of this event. And this factor is paralytic to our leadership. It makes them incapable of taking any risk. It makes them incapable of giving us any degree of independence because now they have to look over the shoulder because it's too easy to bleat. It's now their fault. And it wouldn't have been their fault were they not in such a rush to assume more power to themselves and control our lives. Well, in fact, Seth, you and I talked early on about the fact that President Trump refused. He first started to and then refused to take power into his hands to dictate the responses at 50 state levels. And we were crowing uh, his praises about the fact that he constrained his exercise of power, notwithstanding that first we had people bleeding, uh, bleating at the state level that they should get to decide and then demanding that the president take responsibility. Why? So that they could deflect the blame if things didn't come out. I've thought, and maybe I'm the only one that thinks this, that there's there's something higher level than absurd about this bailout, this covid relief bill, if you will. 
where the federal government is being asked to pay for bad decisions made by certain governors and mayors. That's correct. The bailouts. No, that's where the the wallet is, of course. But I almost wonder if certain governors and mayors would have done things a little differently if they knew they would have to pay for them from their budgets. Well, as long as they knew that they had friends in Congress to cover their failures, that's one example. But in fact, the congressional action taken to require the uh, overturning of the IRS decision that people who received loan money that was then forgiven should uh, the IRS said you shouldn't get to deduct expenses against that. Well, now that position is being reversed. So you get the free money and you get to deduct the expenses you pay with it. I'll explain in my closing why that's okay. so pernicious. Good. We'll be right back. Oh, you found it. This is I like this better. Nice. One of the few songs he actually wrote. Hugh Holman, you wanted to bring us to a grand conclusion of a point that will make us all very uplifted and happy. Well, okay. The worst of cronyism is that the IRS had taken the position that uh, if you got free money from the feds during this pandemic, you then could not deduct expenses on your income tax return against that free money because you'd gotten free money already that wasn't counted as income. So now you could take that money, pay expenses, and couldn't deduct the expenses. So it just kind of was a wash. Well, now the Congress has overridden that position. So if you got free money, $100,000 in free money, you can now also take $100,000 in expenses against your other income. Well, who's that benefiting? It wasn't benefiting the businesses that were having trouble and losing money. It's only going to benefit and be of value to companies that were already profitable. Now they not only got free money, but they're going to get to take deductions and hide even more of their money from paying taxes. Those are the worst of the cronies. They got free money they didn't need and now get deductions that they shouldn't deserve. In 1991, there were three socks for every two people in the Soviet Union. I bring that up because life is complicated. (laughs) Yeah. And it's very hard for people at the top in any kind of centralized way to make decisions for hundreds of millions of people. So we need to minimize the ability of people to do that. Mm -hmm. The entire pandemic has been one more centralization of power after another. And we need to stop treating this as if it's a simple problem because it's really complicated. I like what you – yeah, I mean, but this this last uh, – my gosh, I hope Congress just disbands right now. I, we can't do another – the president, I don't think, is going to veto this relief bill, but he is demanding that they put more money into individual relief. I, just This year needs to end. It just needs to end. As um, Thomas More says in A Man for All Seasons, I show you the times. Folks, until tomorrow, God bless you. Class dismissed. Chin up. Chin up. Never, Never surrender. We'll be back.